Greetings and welcome to the podcast, Why Are You Sober? I'm your host, Sam, and yes, I am an alcoholic and I'm also in recovery. This podcast is hopefully a place where we can come together, hear stories about recovery, gain some experience, strength, and hope, and continue exploring the joys of sobriety. If you would like to come on and tell your story, I would love that. You can get in touch with me at a son of recovery at gmail.com. That is A S O N O F R E C O V E R Y at gmail.com. Or perhaps you're someone who is struggling with addiction, or you might know someone and you're not sure where to turn. You can also reach out. Addiction does not have to be a losing battle, and no one is alone. There are people and resources ready to help anyone who asks for it. And now, to start the show, let's open with the serenity prayer. Good and gracious friend, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Well, I'm Sam, and this is my story. Uh, my addiction is primarily alcohol, uh, but and to say where my addiction started, it definitely was more late in college, post-college, uh, where it really set in. Uh, up until that point, I hadn't really experimented a lot with alcohol. I wasn't really a um, very much of a re- rebel. I did uh, try smoking and stuff in high school, but nothing really past that. Um, I didn't really get into drinking in high school at all. Uh, I know a lot of people I've talked to, a lot of other people in recovery, that's really where their their issues started, but that was not my case. Um, I was born in 1981 and grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, where my dad was, and he still is, uh, a Presbyterian pastor. Not in Pennsylvania, but he's still a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, I have an older sister and a younger sister, and my mom. And, you know, growing up was pretty great. We had a, I had a pretty good childhood. Uh, we weren't poor, but we also weren't like really rich. Um, and, but you know, my parents did a really good job, um, making us feel loved and cared for and just enjoying life. Uh, but I loved growing up. I loved being a part of the church and what my dad did there. And I loved, um, yeah, I loved it all. I had, uh, pretty normal experiences. You know, I had camping, hiking, all sorts of stuff, adventures. Um, my parents were really go-getters. Like if we wanted to do something, they encouraged us to do it and try it and get out there. Um, so it was, you know, wonderful. But one of the major things, issues in my life was my sexuality and growing up in the eighties and nineties, um, you know, there are a lot of negative connotations regarding the LGBTQ community, especially around, evangelical mainline churches. Um, and so that's really where a lot of my own internal struggles started was back then. Um, I was, uh, I was like teased a lot in middle school. Um, but once I got to high school, that kind of stopped. Thankfully I was one of the taller, bigger, uh, guys in my class. And, um, but still, I just wrestled with my sexuality uh, and I wrestled with it because I had an understanding that that was wrong, that I could not be gay um, and I didn't want to be gay. And so I really heavily um, prayed about it and did everything I could to not be. And um, except the one thing I didn't uh, do was talk to people about it. Uh, I didn't really feel like there was anyone I could talk to about it. Um, I was ashamed of it. I was, you know, super scared of it. And, but it was there all the time. Um, 
pestering me. So, so I didn't, I had a wonderful youth group experience. I had amazing youth leaders. I, my parents were really wonderful and I could probably have talked to them about it, but I also had uh, people in my family that had struggled with their own sexuality and claimed to have gone through conversion programs that helped them with that. And uh, I wasn't sure that that was really the best place for me to go. And I didn't really want to talk about it at all. Um, So I didn't. And I just kept kind of pushing through, but I struggled. Uh, You could see the struggle in other areas with uh, relationships, but also academically, um, my focus, you know, I I wasn't the worst student in the world, but I also wasn't the best student. Um, So high school was great. I had an amazing group of friends by the end of high school. Um, and I like to call them all weirdos, but I think we all, a lot of us ended up in some kind of part of the LGBTQ spectrum. A lot of them did. And, uh, it makes sense why we were all friends and connected. And even those who are our allies from high school, um, you know, I, I see why we were all friends and connected now because we've continued to support each other through our lives. Um, so, you know, high school was great. Uh, And then I ended up going to a a Christian college because my parents had really wanted all of us to. My parents had gone to Christian colleges and they thought that that was a great foundation for us, not only uh, academically, but faith-based. And so I ended up going to a Christian college uh, on the North Shore of Boston. It was gorgeous and beautiful, but um, I don't look back on my college experience with much fondness, unfortunately. There were definitely some really great, enjoyable times. But what clouded over it the whole time was my struggle with my sexuality. I definitely talked with people there about it, but I talked about it in a sense of that I'd conquered it because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted it to be conquered. I didn't want it to be a thing. So I acted that way. It was kind of like a uh, fake it till you make it type of thing. And that definitely didn't work. Um, I ended up never dating anyone through high school or college. Uh, I think that's really telling about me uh, because I knew I was not interested in girls and I didn't want to hurt anybody. Um, and that was a big thing for me during all of that time. Uh, now, my parents definitely had their suspicions and knew uh, a lot of things like in high school and well, especially middle school and high school. Uh, you know, I was in that definite first generation of guys whose internet history was discovered by their parents and then had to like talk about it. And so those were very awkward conversations. Um, and I would basically deny it. I would deny everything. And, um, because I didn't want it to be true and it didn't really ease any of their anxieties, obviously. And, um, but, we didn't talk about it real in depth because I didn't ever want to go there. Um, and so I finally, I barely got through college. Uh, in fact, my junior year, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go back. I tried to defer for my senior year cause I just wanted a break and I wanted to step away and get out of that environment. But unfortunately that did not work out for me and I ended up just getting through my senior year. And, um, that's really what happened is that I just got through, um, as best I could, cause I just didn't want to be there and be doing any of it. So I graduated and then, um, 
decided that was in 2005 and I had been working at the school actually after that. So I'd been working at the school and was on a vacation and that's actually when Hurricane Katrina had gone through Louisiana and seeing the devastation and everything, I was really moved to want to help. Um, So I decided to uh, quit my job and go for my EMT paramedic. So I ended up moving to Florida where my parents were currently living, moved in with them and started going to school, going back to school. And I got a job at Starbucks and that was pretty cool. I definitely was enjoying school much better uh, and had a lot of fun and actually did uh, make some really great grades uh, at that point. And, but because of how poorly I did in my undergrad, I didn't feel like uh, I could go on for a master's degree or anything, but I also didn't know what I wanted to do with a master's degree. I just knew that I kind of wanted to help people. So um, I went in this EMT paramedic route, but once I finished it and kind of worked on the ambulance a little bit, I didn't really enjoy it. So just kind of stuck with Starbucks and uh, was thinking through what to do. And so during this time, I'm living with my parents, I'm going to school, and I'm working at this really cool Starbucks in South Tampa with all these really awesome um, various LGBTQ queer people and did finally come out of the closet and finally just come to recognition of like, this is who I am. Like, this is it. So I'm done pretending. I'm done hiding. I'm done all of that. And I definitely, you know, after years and years of deception and lies about it, I definitely did not handle it very well. And I mean, I talked with my parents, I talked with friends, I talked with people, you know, I started letting people know. And that definitely started a difficult time uh, of with my parents, uh, of relationships with my parents um, because of their... Uh, understanding of what they felt about homosexuality and um, and the people in my family who had believed that they were cured from it. So, but I really didn't think that that was possible. I was like, this is not, I'm not going to get cured from this. Like, this is not like, this is it. Like, this is me. Um, so, yeah. So things just got real rough with my parents. Um, and, you know, I didn't make the best decisions about not talking with them. I definitely dated people and didn't, you know, didn't share any of that with them. I finally met someone, um, you know, first I got my own apartment. Uh, I had a roommate and that was great. And I was just dating and doing my single life and exploring, uh, basically having a new adolescence. Um, and definitely started drinking a lot. Then, uh, it definitely became a regular part of my, of my week. And then like habits um regularly going out with friends or regularly just always having uh bottles of alcohol around um i eventually met someone and uh he and i dated and then finally moved into each with each other and um i eventually told my parents about that i did not inform them at first that i had moved in with them uh they kind of like discovered it um but i just had been in this mindset of not wanting to talk about stuff. And that's how I coped with things. And that's what I really realized was my major issue was learning, not learning one, just how to cope with stuff and how to just be a human being. Um, I realized there are so many, looking back on my life, I realized there were so many times where I just made decisions for people. I just, I 
would in my head talk myself out of talking to somebody about something because I just said, oh, they're going to think this about it. So, and then I'd just be done with it. And yeah, some of those things were true. I mean, some of those instincts were real, but if I just, I know now that if I just actually opened my mouth and started talking to people, um, a lot of stuff would have been cleared up early on. And that's one of the things I like t- so regret about looking back on stuff is that like, I'm just like, man, if I just talked to somebody, um, and I definitely tried, I mean, I definitely even tried counselors through college and, um, and I mean, I remember one counselor in college and I wasn't able to hear this person definitely was telling me that I was okay, that they were like, you're, there's nothing wrong with you. You, you don't have to not like you, you're gay. It's okay. And, um, but I couldn't hear that at the time because I just didn't want to be, I believed that it was completely wrong. So so I finally come out, I'm now living with this person. Things are still really rocky with my parents. Um, but I mean, I'd been, you know, not telling them the truth, not telling them the whole story for so long in my life that of course, like things were just not great. Um, and I mean, there was even a time where, uh, my family had the, one of my family members come into town to talk with me about joining one of those um, conversion programs. And I was like, that's not happening. Like, that's really glad that you came, but that was a waste of your time because this is like, that's not going to happen. Um, and I'm really glad that I kind of had that foresight. I t- definitely think that that is um, God in my life, just being like helping me not go down a certain road and make other mistakes. But um, so just throughout that whole time, I'm just coping with this with alcohol and just drinking and pretending and pretending my life is great and pretending I have this wonderful person in my life and pretending I have this great job and pretending all this stuff. Um, and I kept pretending for a really long time uh, until my ex and I, and I'm going to refer to him as my ex because we did eventually get married. Um, and we eloped again, another thing that was deceptive, didn't tell my parents. We finally told them afterwards, obviously. Um, but we just went to the courthouse and did it. Um, after about being together for six years. Um, and you know, those six, seven years were okay. Uh, they definitely had their issues, but you know, overall we had fun and definitely were both drinking, definitely very codependent relationship. Um, so after we got married, um, you know, my parents definitely started inviting uh, my ex over more often. Now he was invited to more family gatherings and holidays and and that stuff. So you know, things on that side were kind of better. Um, but I, you know, there's still all this unresolved issues with myself, with my past, with my parents, and um, it eventually came to a culmination on um, October 2nd of 2016. So my birthday is September 29th. And um, and so that year, I believe my birthday was like on a Thursday. And so my friends and I decided that we were going to go out that weekend and do a, um, a, a drag brunch down in this place called Ebor in Tampa. In Tampa. Um, and and that was going to be great. Now, up until this point, my ex 
always worked on Sundays. So Sunday was my day at home by myself where I could do some chores and just kind of like enjoy life and take the dogs for walks and stuff like that. But also it was a day that I could drink just uninhibitedly. And so I did. I would oftentimes he would come home on a Sunday and I'd be passed out or completely wasted or slightly, you know, I like stopped drinking an hour beforehand and tried to sober up as much as I could and all that stuff. But, you know, regularly he would come home and find me um, having really enjoyed my day. And then I would wake up the next day, like completely feeling gross. Um, but I would go to work and that became a regular habit for me. Um, and eventually I actually remember starting, um, on Fridays, I would actually go to a liquor store. I would get a bottle of vodka. I would, uh, keep it in the back of my car and I would enjoy a cocktail while at work. Yeah. I mean, it, it got really bad. Um, so, so on October 2nd, 2016, my friends and I decided to meet up and go to the drag bar, uh, Hamburger Mary, the drag place Hamburger Mary's down in Ebor and go to brunch. Of course, my ex left that morning to go to work and he was obviously, he was still, he was nervous about me going off for the day because of my habits up until that point. But, um, he left anyways and I, definitely pre-gamed before I went down there. I had a couple of cocktails before I left the house. And then I went down to, uh, the brunch, ate some food, drank some more, and then, uh, some friends left, but others stayed. And so those friends and I went out to a couple more bars when I really should have just gone home, but we kept going out. And, uh, eventually we get to one bar and I'm pretty hammered. Uh, my friends are playing pool. No one's really like with me. And I just kind of decided that I wanted to leave. So I didn't say anything to anyone and I just walked out the door. Uh, I mean, thankfully I paid my tab, uh, and got my card, but, uh, yeah, I just left without saying anything to anybody and stumbled my way to the parking garage where my car was. And I'm sure that if anybody was watching me, they would have <laughs> thought I looked hilarious. Um, so I get in my car, I was able to start my car to back it out of the parking spot, drive to the exit lane of the parking garage, which is where I ended up just parking my car. Uh, I don't, all of this from the bar through that moment is all pretty fuzzy. I just have like vague flashbacks of what was going on, but I ended up parking my car in the exit lane of the parking garage right next to the automatic uh, payment machine. And what the cops think is that I just, I couldn't figure out how to get my ticket in the machine and then pay. Um, but I firmly believe that uh, on a faith base that um, God put a big wall in front of me and stopped me from going anywhere. So um, what ended up happening at that point is that I was, I was calling random family members and crying on the phone. Um, I remember talking to my aunt on the phone. I, uh, I definitely tried calling a cousin. Um, I, uh, tried calling even my husband, my ex at the time at my ex. Um, and, and I was just crying. I was just crying. I know that I was in pain and that I was feeling exhausted and done with life. I, um, trigger warning, uh, but I was not feeling suicidal. I I've never had that instinct in my life. Um, and I'm very grateful for that, but 
but I definitely was just feeling done with everything and not wanting to be in so much pain anymore. And the last person I was on the phone with was my dad. Uh, and by that point, the cops had finally gotten there. So the parking attendant, when he realized that I was just kind of in, uh, inebriated and um, a mess, he just put cones around my car and then called the cops. Um, so the cops arrived and also my ex did. And at that point, I'm still on the phone with my dad and the cops are at my window and I just hand my phone to a police officer, which turned out to be a really uh, good thing that I did at that point because that enabled my dad to get information about what was going on besides just me crying over the phone. He was able to find out that I wasn't hurt, that I hadn't hurt anybody, that my car was okay, that I hadn't caused any property damage, and really that the only major issue was that I was just completely hammered um, and behind the wheel. So, you know, I had to get arrested. Um, So, but I mean, at least it gave him and my mom some peace of mind of what was going on at that moment. Um, But I, I don't really remember what I was telling him, but I know that I was just in pain and just wanting it to all be over and to be just back in communication with my parents. Um, I, I needed them to not be struggling with my sexuality anymore. And I needed to know that it was done. Um, and I know that that I felt like that, that was a lot to ask of them at that point. But, um, but so anyways, I'm arrested. Um, another really great thing I did was that when we went to go do the field sobriety test, I said to the police officers, we all know that I'm drunk, so you can just arrest me. Like we, I know we, we all can tell I'm drunk. Um, so they did, they just put me in the back of the car and drove me to jail. Um, and at the jail, (laughs) that, this is the funny part. So this is where I actually start remembering things a little more detail and listen i mean i gotta be able to laugh at these stupid things that i did in my life because if i don't i mean it's just gonna weigh me down but i mean i parked my car in the exit lane of a parking garage that's how i got my dui like how how stupid is that and you know what's kind of crazy is i've actually met a couple other people who've done the same thing um anyways i get to the house i get to the um jail and i am in a hallway and I have to go see this nurse who takes, end up takes my uh, blood alcohol level. She tests it three times and it turns out that my blood alcohol level is around 0.24, which even in my drunk state at that point, I knew how severe that was. Um, So a lot of people don't know that police officers can arrest you for a DUI regardless of your blood alcohol level. If they feel like you are impaired and you are driving it in erratically, um, even if your blood alcohol level is 0.06 or 0.05, they can bring you in on charges of DUI if they want. It only starts, like the definitive start at 0.08. If you're a 0.08 or above, you're going in for a DUI, Um, at least down in Florida, and at least that's my understanding. But um, so, yeah, so mine was 0.24, three times that level of intoxication. Um, So I was really, really hammered. And probably before that, it probably would have blown even higher. And I I can't even imagine that. Um, So I see her and then I go into the processing and they take my mugshot where I wanted to smile for it. And the police officers kept telling me not to. Um, 
but so I ended up having this weird, like smirky face in my, um, in my mugshot. And I look like such a dumbass. I always wanted to like to be like, you idiot. Um, and then I went over to this window where there was a woman for processing all of the uh, stuff that had been on my person. So like my wallet and my um, phone and keys and all those types of things. Um, when they had arrested me, uh, my sweatshirt was in my car. So all I had on was a t-shirt and jeans. And now in Florida in late September, that's fine because it's warm. But in uh, a jail, when the AC is cranked up to like 66 degrees, um, it's pretty freaking cold. So I'm freezing in there and she's going through all this stuff with me. And finally she says, so it's going to be a $500 bail. How do you want to pay that? And, uh, she actually just was able to swipe my debit card and I paid my own bail, which I thought was kind of crazy, but I did it anyways. And then they eventually took me into this giant waiting room that had uh, rows of chairs. They had a desk with a security guard there, a wall of phones in the back and other security guards around, but there were definitely people in there. And so they just seat me down in this spot. And this police officer takes me over there and he says, okay, you're just going to sit here for the rest of the night. Um, and I was like, okay. So I did, I just sat there. I wasn't allowed to lay down. I wasn't allowed to, um, yeah, I, 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 they wouldn't even really let me sleep. Uh, and I was freezing cold. I, I like pulled my arms in, into my t-shirt around my body. I remember at one point just trying to keep warm. Um, so I sat there for a while, not really knowing what was going on and just being told, you know, like I had to sit there. So I finally asked the guard at the desk, like if I could get some water and he said, Oh yeah, of course. And he showed me where that was. And, um, then I asked if, like when I was going to be able to make a phone call and he, I remember him looking surprised and being like, you haven't made a phone call yet? And I said, no. So he immediately got somebody to help me over to the phones and let me know how to use them. And uh, thankfully, at the time, I had my ex's phone number memorized. So I was able to call him. And I know the conversation did not, it was not a great conversation, obviously, because I'm in jail. Uh, <laughs> and But he and I talked and uh, I had found out that he was allowed to come get me at 3 a.m. That I had to uh, stay in jail for at least eight hours and that my booking time had been 7 p.m. So um, that was going to be the earliest that I was going to be released. Uh, I had also learned that he had talked with my parents and all of our families about everything. Um, everyone was very concerned, obviously. But uh, he'd also gone to get all the bail money. I uh, had to go to a couple different ATMs to get it out. And by the time he got to the jail, I'd already paid it. So um, the person at the front desk of the jail just told him that, you know, it was all taken care of and that he'd come back and give me a three. And then she told him that I was okay, but I just was really sad, which is really true. I mean, I was, I was just in a really just sad spot. And I was also angry. I was really angry with my parents. I was really angry with life and that, um, that, you know, I, I just didn't understand why, why being gay was so wrong. I just didn't get it. I didn't understand why people couldn't just be okay with it. Why the church was so upset about it. Why any, I mean, I, I was so mad about so much stuff and I was like, this is bullshit. And I never, ever, ever felt that God turned his back on me, ever, ever. I just, 
my entire thought the whole time was that people just didn't understand. And that is still the way I think about it, is that people don't understand. Um, so, so anyways, um, thankfully, uh, it, we ended the conversation and I go back to um, my chair and I'm just sitting there and just, you know, letting the time tick by, tick by, tick by. And finally, a police officer comes over uh, and she says to me, so an officer is going to come and he's going to direct all of the men to do something, but you, this does not apply to you. You just need to sit here, okay? Just don't, just, you just sit right here and don't move. And I said, okay. And sure enough, a few moments later, another officer came to the front, called all the guys up. All the guys had to go to the, to the, um, wall, all line up along the wall. Then they all get escorted out. And eventually they all get into some jumpsuits and they all get sent to cells. And I just sat there wondering why I hadn't been called either. And then all the women are called and that whole thing happens. And then I'm suddenly alone. And eventually as more people are arrested, the waiting room area fills up again and the same thing happens. This happens like two or three times throughout the night. And I just was like the whole time, no, I never was called to go and uh, go to a holding cell or anything. So I finished out my night there uh, and my ex comes and picks me up and I go home. And so for the next few days, I definitely didn't go to work. Uh, he'd called my boss and let her know what was going on. Um, and for the next few days, I had a lot of really, really hard conversations with my parents, with um, my siblings and other family members. But also, I now had this giant legal criminal thing in my life that I had to get taken care of. And so it's also calling a lawyer friend of mine, I called a counselor friend of mine who um, I actually asked if we could start seeing each other professionally. And that was really wonderful that she took me on. And um, also some other friends or connections that I had in the legal system to kind of help me. And I also had to call friends because uh, my car was impounded and my ex had to work. So uh, friends came to help me. They picked me up. They took me to get my car all sorts of stuff. I had to figure out how to get my business only license. I had to, there was so much I had to do in a very small amount of time, as well as trying not to lose my job because, um, I ended up having to talk to my boss and, and that was a really hard conversation, uh, to have and really scary. Um, because, you know, I mean, she had every right to just like fire me. I mean, I did a really stupid thing and, um, gratefully, she didn't. And, um, so we were on the phone and I remember after her asking me if I was okay, the next question was, so Sam, are you an alcoholic? And I remember that hitting me and knowing that I only had one answer to that question. And I said, yes. And she said, yes, what? And I said, yes, I'm an alcoholic. And she said, okay. Now we can, now we can do something about this. And, um, it was great. We started talking about what I was going to do and how I was going to get sober. Um, and she was definitely one of my biggest supporters, uh, throughout my entire, uh, processing with the legal system and uh, my whole sobriety. She was definitely one of my biggest cheerleaders. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, because there are not a lot of people, there are not that many people out there that would do that. And 
So, so I get off the phone with her and I get through a couple of days of trying to figure out my life and what's next and getting my car and all these things. And I end up going to my first uh, sobriety meeting uh, that Wednesday. Now, I consider my sobriety date to be October 3rd. So the day I was released from jail and I, that was the first day that I didn't drink. That was the first day I didn't drink. So, uh, so yeah, so by Wednesday, I'd finally gotten, you know, pretty sobered up. Um, I slept a lot, finally went to work that day and decided that I was going to go to a meeting. So I went to, um, I found a, a clubhouse that hosted meetings all day long. They had meetings morning, noon, and night. It was a nonprofit organization that had this amazing house that people could come to, to get sober. Um, and it wasn't a halfway house. It wasn't anything like that. It was just a clubhouse that people met at for different meetings throughout the day. And it was every day, all yeah, seven days a week. Um, so I thought that this was great. It also had a 6 PM meeting, which was wonderful because, um, that was, you know, perfect on my, and it was on my drive home from work. So it all ended up being great. So I go to this meeting, I walk in the door and, uh, there are couches all along the wall, but there are a, a bunch of tables in a big square in the, in the middle of the room. So I just sit down at the tables and there's a woman at the front table and she ends up being the leader I've learned. And her name is Amanda. And hopefully you guys will get to hear her story soon, but she's amazing. And after I sit down, after a moment, she leans over, asks me who I am, and then says, hey, would you mind reading something for us? And I was like, sure. And she hands me this single-lined, single-spaced, double-sided piece of paper that is full length, both sides. Um, And I'm like, oh, okay. And she's like, yeah, I'll just tell you when you need to read that. And I was like, okay. so I'm just looking it over and at the very top it says how it works, which um, if anyone knows, that is a section from the AA Big Book. And um, so so the meeting starts and everyone's going around and one person says uh, reads, reads one thing and they start out by saying, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm al- alcoholic and I'm reading this and they read their little thing. And then the next person says, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm alcoholic and they read their thing. And then it gets to me. And Amanda says, so I asked a friend to read how it works. And she, and she looks at me and I said, I'm Sam, I'm an alcoholic, and this is how it works. And this still makes me uh, uh, tear up um, because that was the first time in a group of people that I'd said that. And, um, and I knew I could say it there. And I had already said it once in the, in the universe to someone. So it was true and it was real. And, and then I started reading this thing that said, this is how it works. And it was the very first thing I've ever read out of any sober literature ever. And I'm reading this statement about this is how sobriety works. This is how you do it. This is how it, and the whole time I'm reading it, I'm just saying in my head, this is what you have to commit to. This is how you have to do this. And I have said so many times to Amanda that that was totally my higher power. 
reaching into that moment to give me exactly what I needed at that second. And so that had ended up being the only thing I said during that meeting. Um, I just sat and listened to uh, everybody else uh, respond and tell their stories about whatever throughout the day or whatever was going on. Um, I mean, I was pretty overwhelmed, but there are a couple things I remember from that meeting of, I met my friend Allison, who you will get to hear her story, which is unbelievable. Um, and she came up and talked to me about, just asked me who I was. And, um, you know, I definitely told her about what had just recently happened. And, um, she related to me about having had gotten a DUI once herself. And, um, so it was great to like, just meet this really fun, vibrant person who was like, I think she was at that time, six months sober and enjoying life and just, and I was like, cool, this is awesome. Okay. This, this chick is pretty cool. Um, and there are other really cool people I met. Um, that was one of the best things about that community was the level of, um, of differences and of the, in the community. I mean, there were people who were pretty country or redneckish. And then there were people who were pretty, uh, blue collar, white collar. There were men and women and, uh, people of varying genders and, uh, sexualities, uh, and even races. And it was so wonderful to be in this, such an inclusive and community that was just so welcoming. Um, there's this really cool guy who his, uh, his name is breeze. And unfortunately he, uh, he's passed away since then. Um, but, he was one of the key figures in my first year of sobriety. And at this first meeting I ever went to, I remember him looking at me and saying, young man, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And that light is not a train coming for you. That light is freedom. It is love and it is joy. And it still moves me to think about him saying that to me. And I know he has said that to many other people and many other people have heard that statement that he didn't create that statement that anything, but he said it to me in that moment. It gave me so much hope. And, you know, so anyways, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to cry throughout this whole thing. So just be ready. Um, so I start going to meetings every day. I I'm going all the time. Um, and I'm just clicking in. I, I buy the literature. I um, am committing to, and I'm talking in groups. I'm actually like sharing his stuff and I'm, I'm uh, getting ideas from other people and, uh, you know, just letting people know what's going on in my life and hearing from them about how to handle it and stuff like that. And, um, you know, totally different than the way to ever run my life. And finally, I'm just like, yeah, this is great. Awesome. Okay. So I've gotten to the end of my 30 days. But I still haven't gotten a sponsor yet. And I, at this point, I'm like, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. I'm like, I'm feeling great. I'm not having any like longings or desires to drink. I'm, you know, I'm, I am smoking at that point. But um, I definitely wasn't, you know, itching or desiring to get alcohol. And I was seeing my therapist regularly. So I felt like I was doing pretty great. And that week, I went to go talk to my therapist. And she asked me about getting a sponsor. And I said, no, I haven't gotten one yet. And she's like, what? I said, no. She said, okay, well, that is what you have to do next. And I said, what? She goes, listen, if we are going to continue our therapy and you're going to continue going to a 12-step program, you have to get a sponsor. 
And that was my next task for the next week that I had to get one by next week. So (laughs) I started racking my brain. Now, there were tons of tons of people in the meetings. Um, There were a lot of people around and a lot of guys, especially. Uh, But, you know, I had never been super comfortable being around lots of guys, uh, especially being gay, especially around a lot of like really tough, rough guys. And at this community place, there were a lot of guys who were bikers and smokers and chewed and all sorts of stuff. And I was just like, these are not the typical people that I hang out with. But, um, you know, but also I was just like really nervous about asking anyone. Um, there was one guy who I really thought about, but he had a lot of sponsees already and actually doing my typical thing. I answered the question for him without even asking him. I just decided that he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to be able to say yes. I said he, he would say no. So I'm not going to ask him because he's got all these sponsees already and, um, all this stuff. So I talked myself out of it and that was a regular thing I did in my life up until that point was make decisions for people as I had said. So he was out of the question. But then there was this other guy, his name is Bobby, and Bobby was one of those biker guys. He actually was a Napa auto parts salesman. Um, he is, Bobby's a huge guy, has this big white bushy mustache, uh, smokes pretty regularly, and um, he's half Navajo. He is a big guy. I, I'm six foot one, and Bobby is very close to me and could definitely take me on. Like, it, he's... He's a powerhouse and he has a deep voice and powerful voice. And so when he would speak in meetings, everybody would listen. I listened out of fear sometimes because I was like, wow, this guy's intense. But um, I started to realize that people were listening to him out of respect because he knew what he was talking about. And he just was a, you know, a very forceful uh, kind of charismatic guy. And he had this wonderful way of, of talking and helping people to understand what he was saying, or if he disagreed with somebody or somebody disagreed with him, he wouldn't put them down, uh, but he would talk with them about it, about why he thought the way he thought and why they thought the way they thought. And, you know, he would, it was, it was really great. And I started realizing like, yeah, I, I think I want this guy. So I eventually asked him <laughs> and uh, he said, yes. And I'm so grateful for that. But, that relationship uh, is one of like the most amazing ones that I've ever had in my life. Uh, I I am so grateful for Bobby having said yes, because he was very hesitant at first. He told me Um, something that has always been a big part of my life. I think that if you could listen, if you've been listening up until this point, you would totally understand that my faith is very important to me. And so and it has always been important to me. And as I said, I never throughout any of my struggles or anything, I never felt that God turned his back on me, but more that I had turned my back on him. Um, so, so Bobby had been hearing me share, m- share my stories and meanings about my faith and my understanding of my faith and um, who my higher power was. And, and that kind of terrified Bobby. Because Bobby didn't had never had a sponsee who had walked in having a higher power and understanding who that higher power was and why they believed in them and um and it was it was even a bit for him but um he realized that he was like okay I'll do this and he took it on and I'm really glad he did because 
something that I realized in what he was teaching me during that time was even though I knew who my higher power was and why, I'd forgotten about how to do it, how to be in touch with them, how to, how to listen to my higher power, how to, how to get outside of myself. And, and that's what Bobby, Bobby walked in teaching me was that kind of stuff. Um, so one of the things that Bobby had me do right away was start cooking breakfast on the weekends. So the house, uh, as I said, it was this awesome a community house that had a full kitchen. And one of the ways that the nonprofit raised a little bit of extra money for themselves was people would cook breakfast on the weekends. Um, so I started cooking breakfast and I would just do stuff like uh, bacon, eggs, and potatoes, uh, pancakes, different toasts and French toast or waffles or all sorts of stuff. People would pay like $5 for a plate of food. And um, and it'd be great because I would get to sit and listen to people while I'm cooking their food, hearing stories about their life, what's going on, different issues they were having, how they were handling those, who was helping them, um, or just funny stories that had happened in their life or all sorts of things. And like all those days and weekends, I'm just sitting around listening to all these various people of different levels of sobrieties from different areas, from different cultures, from different backgrounds, and listening to how they rely on their higher power and how they rely on their community and how they rely on themselves and each other. And, and that started to hit me of like, Oh, this is how, this is how this works. And I kept going back to that first time I read that, like, Oh, this is how this works. Like I need to show up. I need to do stuff. I need to talk with people. I need to be present and available. And I need to, help when asked, but also help when I'm not asked and, um, and get help when I need it and stick up my hand and ask questions and do things. And, you know, Bobby was showing me like, this is how life works. Like you're not alone. <laughs> like you can ask for help. You can, you can, you can be with other people. Um, and so that was, that was such a gift. Um, so, so let's see, I'm getting sober. I have a, I have a therapist, I have a sponsor. I'm, I'm volunteering and doing community service and all of a sudden the whole time also my probation stuff is going on or at least the, the criminal stuff is happening and you know, I'm having to get my court dates and all that stuff. So Bobby made sure that I had this planner and I would write down everything from my, on my planner from uh, my court stuff to my work stuff to a meeting. And also though, I'd have to write down like every day in the morning, I'd write down three things I was grateful for, three things I was looking forward to, and three things I was gonna work on that day. And then in the evening, I would reflect on those things and think through like, did I work on those things? Do I need to do something different tomorrow? Um, what am I grateful for at the end of the day? And, um, and also think through like, had I hurt anybody or done anything that I need to go back and ask for forgiveness for, or, um, make an amends for. And so he was getting me in this habit of like, just thinking through stuff and, um, and not being so self, um, selfish, but being self-centered and which is a very different thing than being selfish. Um, and and being a part of my community and my family and people. So, so that was super great. And 
you know, he was showing me that if I show up, if I do the work, if I put in the time, like if I'm honest and if like things will, things will work out, things will be better. Um, so, so I finally get to the point where we're having my arraignment. So, um, I had previously had a court date uh, in November sometime. And then, you know, they're like, so um, get a lawyer and come back. And this is the day that you'll come back and we'll do the arraignment. Um, so I, so that day came and it was going to be December 7th that I was going to go to the court and, uh, you know, get sentenced. And, um, and I didn't have, a, I decided that I wasn't going to have any representation. Uh, but I talked with a lot of people about it. And one of them was Bobby. And I really felt like that was really important that I was just going to go and take responsibility for my actions. And um, Bobby was like, that's great. But I think you should probably have a written statement. Um, he's like, so I did. I had a written statement. So I, I get to the court. And then the court is full. The courtroom is full of people all there waiting to go before the judge and the judge sentence them for whatever they've done and to hear their story and um, talk to their lawyer or whatever. So they're calling people up and eventually they get to me and I get up and go before the judge and he looks at me and says, so you don't have any representation? And I (laughs) immediately go, no, but I do have a written statement. And my statement was something like this. So I'm, I'm over 60 days sober. I'm committing, uh, I'm committing myself to sobriety and to a recovery community. Um, and I'm here to take responsibility for my actions. Uh, and the judge, I remember him just kind of sitting back for a second, looking at me. And after a moment, he leaned forward and he said, okay, well, young man, uh, I cannot make, I cannot take any of your probation requirements away from you. Uh, cause you blew very high and that is very true. I really did. I mean, 0.24 is very high alcohol level. Um, I could have, if I had gotten out on the road, I could have done some very serious damage to myself or anybody else. Um, So he's like, I can't take anything away, but I can make things a little bit easier for you. And at that point, he started to cut everything in half from my financial requirements to my probationary requirements, from like my community service to the breathalyzer being on my car. He just cut everything in half. And he said, he said, so I hope to see you here. I hope to see your paperwork in front of my desk very soon. Because one of the other things he said was that once my probationary requirements were finished, I could be let go of probation. Um, I didn't have to serve the full year. So I, (laughs) so I just said, thank you. And, um, went and signed my paperwork and walked out the door. And all of a sudden I realized that it had all worked. Everything that I've been working for had happened. That I showed up, that I did what I was supposed to do, that I took responsibility for myself, and things turn out okay. Um, The gift that that judge gave me was so wonderful because I did get my probationary, probation stuff taken care of very quickly and was out of it um, by that summer. And it was so glorious to know that I had my license and I had um, my life back uh, and that I had done it and I had gotten the work done and that I had relied on other people to do it. Um, so at 
that point, I'm thinking everything is pretty great. Life is good. I've got my job. I've got my uh, life back and car back and I no more probation and, uh, and relationships are all going pretty well. And it did for a little while. And I finally got to about a year and a half of sobriety. And all of a sudden, uh, my ex asks if we can get a divorce. And that actually at first really shocked me. I was really surprised. I just, I thought that everything was going great, but apparently it wasn't. And you know what? It really wasn't. After a very long talk that night and discussions, we decided that we should split up and we did. Um, and I eventually realized that this was the right decision. But, you know, here all of a sudden I was having this major life thing happen. And what I ended up doing was going to my community and going back to see my therapist regularly and started to see Bobby regularly again and started going to meetings regularly again to be around people. And I suddenly realized that's how this works. I don't have to go drink. I don't have to go use stuff to, I just need to come and share with people and be with people and just invite them into my life. Like that's how I, that's how I cope. That's how I get through life. That's how I do this is in community with other people. Like, of course, this makes so much sense. And I remember definitely people who reflect on that time in my life and went, man, you like, you got through that divorce like pretty good, pretty well. And I mean, I think overall I did, but I only did, I was only able to because I didn't do it alone. I did it with my community, my friends, my sponsor, my therapist, my family. And I didn't just hide and pretend like things were terrible and that things weren't terrible. But I just admitted this isn't, this sucks. And, but I got through it. Um, so yeah. So eventually, so yeah. So then I got sober and, and, you know, the, the divorce was sad and I have nothing against my ex in any way, shape or form. And I, you know, wish him well, but I know that, yeah, it was best that we weren't together. Um, but you know, somebody who can walk through a year and a half of sobriety with somebody, that's, that's, that's a good person. Um, but you know, it was best that we left. And so it ended and I just continued working and just having my life then. Um, and eventually I did meet somebody else that turned out to be the most amazing thing that ever happened. Um, so now I'm going to get to the part of why I'm sober. Um, and that's why I'm sober. So I met my husband now. Um, he and I met and it was pretty much like love at first sight. I, I mean, we became inseparable pretty quickly. Uh, and he is one of the most amazing, caring, compassionate, big hearted, it, just capable people I've ever met in my life. Um, and he came in and showed me how fun uh, life can be again. And it was, it was a whirlwind and a roller coaster ever since that moment. Um, but eventually what happened was we both decided that we wanted to get out of Florida. So we ended up, uh, we ended up quitting our jobs, which was great because I really, really realized that I really started hating my job. Um, so we both quit our jobs and, um, ended up moving to North Carolina, uh, into the mountains of North Carolina where, uh, I have decided to go back and get my master's degree. Uh, I'm currently studying a master's of science in addiction counseling. 
And I am also the technical director at an amazing church. So my faith has not left me. I still uh, love being in church and being a part of it. And now I'm in this amazing church that is accepting of me and my husband and um, loves us being here. And uh, he is a wonderful preschool director. And yeah, so we have this amazing life together now. And the other reason I'm sober is because of just enjoying life and my family. So after my sobriety, once I started getting sober, I remember my parents and I, um, I spent a week with them by myself. Uh, it was about five months after, uh, after getting sober and after my DUI. So I was still on my probation, but I flew to Pennsylvania from Florida where my parents were living and spent a week with them. Um, by myself, without anybody, without my sisters, without my nieces and nephews, it wasn't a holiday, like nobody else around, just us. And I can't remember the last time I'd had a whole week by myself with my parents. But it was the most amazing time together because we had to really talk through l- our lives together and mistakes we'd all made. And we were able to forgive each other and let go of all sorts of stuff and just finally move on. Um, so... So this time when I got married, uh, my family was all involved. Um, and this makes me want to cry because uh, my dad was my best man. Uh, my mom was a part of the ceremony and all of my siblings and my best friends were all a part of the ceremony. And it was such a gift to, to be celebrated together, but to celebrate with my people and with the people I love. Um, And that's why I'm sober, is to experience these wonderful moments together in community with others and know that I'm there and I'm present and I'm experiencing it and enjoying it for all that it is. Um, Even the hard stuff, you know, Um, to get through it, to feel it and to get through it, to be able to feel that high then afterwards, after feeling all the lows, it's an amazing experience. So, So that's why I stay sober. So I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed my story. Um, This is very different than the very first one I actually recorded, Um, but I'm really pleased with it. So as you heard in the beginning and as you'll hear in the the exit stuff, if you want to get in touch with me and if you would like to tell your story of sobriety, I would love to hear that and I would love to talk with you. So please reach out. Also, I do have a website. The website is actually whyareyousober.org. So until next time, I will let you all go, and I wish you all peace, love, and a whole lot of joy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast, Why Are You Sober? If you would like to come on the show and share your story, I would love to talk with you regarding any addiction. This podcast is not just about alcohol addiction, but sobriety of any addiction. The more stories we have, the more stories people can relate to and gain some experience, strength, and hope. You can reach me at my email, asonofrecovery at gmail.com. That is A-S-O-N-O-F-R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y at gmail.com. Please subscribe and rate us. And as always, I'm wishing you all peace, love, and a whole lot of joy.